So what we're going to do is I'm just going to make a couple statements about last week's teaching. I uh, was given a very helpful comment by someone, part of this community, who suggested that we take more time on these kinds of topics and reiterate more and review more. And um, also one idea was presented, which was to give you guys some notes that you can follow. Um, And we can even just do this by show of hands. So if let's say on, on a given Sunday when we do teaching, if there was some kind of handout that just had an outline of scriptures and main points that you could look at during the time, would you guys find that helpful by show of hands? Okay. If you take, so some just prefer to take their own notes, you know, but that's just the way I am personally. But if you guys would like something that you can look at, then um, I'll think about that. So, okay. So I'll keep that in mind. Um, so what I'm going to do just for the sake of reiterating some things last week is just go over a couple or really one main point from last week. So last week we went over the topic of God's wrath and why that is just as important or just as essential as his love and how you can't actually have love, God's love, without his wrath. Uh, you, You need both in order for there to be a complete knowledge of God's character and a complete revelation of his character. So I'm going to give you guys one statement that if you... Choose to write it down, you can, but this is one statement that kind of summarizes what we went over last week, which is that wrath is the intensity of God's love for his creation expressed in the obliteration of what would endanger his creation. So I'll say that one more time. Wrath is the intensity of God's love for his creation expressed in the obliteration of of what would endanger his creation. That's what God's wrath is. So you're looking at to say it in fewer words. What's that? Say it one more time. Okay. Wrath is the intensity of God's love for his creation expressed in the obliteration of what would endanger his creation. I'll do it one more time just in case. (laughs) Wrath is the intensity of God's love for his creation expressed in the obliteration of what would endanger his creation. You could also say what would threaten his creation. Oh, loud door. Okay. So when you have the discussion of God's wrath talked about, One of the main points we focused on was the intensity of God's love therein. And we looked at one scripture for that, uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. Again, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6, which states that God's love is a most vehement flame. So the topic of hell being described as a fire that's not quenched. Song of Solomon actually says that God's love is that unquenchable fire. And so we discussed that the intensity of God's love is really his efforts to protect his creation, to protect what he loves, which is us. And so that love is so intense that it results in the destruction of everything that's a threat to that creation which is why hell is the place of destruction for whatever would be an enemy to his creation. 
So hell, the fact that hell is fire is actually representative of the love of God, particularly in its intensity against the enemies of God. So that was what we went over last week. And then one other scripture that was a main focus was Revelation chapter 11. And that was, I believe it was verse 18, but let me verify that real quick. Revelation chapter 11. Yeah, verse 18. Yep. Revelation 11, verse 18. Okay. So, are there any questions from last week about any of that? Yes. Yeah, do do we experience any of that? Do you mean from God or like inside of ourselves? No, so like in our relationship. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So quick comment. So when you're using if you're gonna speak, use the microphone please. Um and yeah, raise your hand and then make your best effort uh if you're going to make a comment to have it based on scripture. So to make sure that the comments are most productive, have a scripture if you're making a comment. If it's a question, then simply ask the question um, and make sure you're using the microphone. So, yeah, go yeah, for it. So you were saying God's love um, is also with his wrath, right? So, like, whatever is um, negatively affecting those he loves, he'll, like, destroy. That's the point of his wrath. Point of his wrath. So mm-hmm. do we have any, like, mirror in our relationships with others? Like, is it just love for us, or do we have to have some level of, like, do we have to have a, yeah, like a righteous like intense, obviously like yes. people, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's impossible for any righteous anger that we have to be as intense as God's is, uh, just as we only get a tiny sliver of God's love that we experience here as well. But that's what we have to start with. So when it comes to the love of God, it's important to remember that we are told in Ephesians three, that we should, we should pray to comprehend the width and depth and length and height of God's love. But we're not going to experience that to the full until the age to come. But for the time being, we are told that we're supposed to love one another as Christ loved us. So that, of course, implies that there's a sense in which we will take on the same characteristics of God's love in our experience of life and our expressions to one another. Now, just like in God's love, there also is by necessity some wrath. We will have the same. However, it's not going to be nearly as intense. Uh, Number two, only God is the judge. And uh, Hebrews 10 says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and the Lord will judge his people. So that means any righteous anger that we will have is never to result in us condemning or judging someone particularly particularly an unbeliever as though they are cut off from God because we cannot we can't make that statement until God makes that judgment himself. When Christ returns, he's going to divide the sheep from the goats. We can't do that right now. The only time we can exercise any kind of judgment or discipline the Bible says is inside the church, and that's for the protection of the community, but when it comes to unbelievers, we don't have the right to say to a person that you know God has cut you off. Like, we don't know that yet. There's still a chance for people to be saved, 
right? So anger is never supposed to be expressed like that. However, the Bible does say that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So there's an element of wrath there. So when you fear God, and of course then when you love God, you will hate what God hates as well. So there, there is to be an intense hatred for sin. And part of that hatred for sin is how the fear of God is expressed in our lives. And it's also how our love for God is expressed here. Now, what that should result in is what Jude says. And we went over this verse in Jude last week, uh, in verse 22 of Jude. Jude is just one chapter. But in verse 22, it says to save some with fear. And it says, uh, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So it actually tells us we're supposed to have a certain kind of hatred. And it connects that hatred to being able to save people with fear. So in other words, if somebody's in sin and you know it's a danger to them, but you don't really hate sin, you're probably not going to care that much about how that person would be harming themselves. You'll just brush it off. You'll think, well, sin is really not that big a deal anyway, so why address it? Right? That, that would be a more complacent attitude. But if we had an intense hatred for sin and we see a person in sin, how would we react? We'd want to address it right? we, to help them because we love them. Right? We don't want sin to harm or destroy them or cause them to fall away if they're a believer. So hating even the garment defiled by the flesh is hating sin and everything that sin uh, or any way in which sin has influenced something, even something that sin has touched, he says, to hate it, which enables you to save that person. It motivates you to save that person. And so that there is, to answer the question uh, in finality, there is, yes, a certain level or degree of hatred that we're going to have because of our love for God. And that should result in an aggressive approach and a relentless approach to helping people when they're being affected by sin. That's what it should look like. Does that make sense? Does that answer the question? Yeah. Okay. Any more questions on that or anything else from last week before we move on? Yeah. Microphone. There you go. Okay. Um, you were talking about hating the garments polluted by the flesh. Um, the apostles had like handkerchiefs or whatever it was that they passed, had some kind of anointing on it or something. Do you think that uh, somebody that's really evil, their clothing can affect us? I wouldn't call it clothing or I wouldn't call it just clothing, physical objects absolutely can take on spiritual forces. There are several references to this in the Old Testament where God would specifically command the Israelites when they would destroy a certain nation in Canaan. He would say, burn everything. Don't take any of the spoil. Don't take any of the clothing burn everything. Now, certain cities, it wasn't every city, 
Some cities he would tell them you can you can take the spoil for yourselves and so on and so forth. But some cities he would say destroy everything, don't touch any of it. One city in particular was Jericho, which is where the wall fell down. So a question comes up is why why would he tell them to not take anything? And the reason why is because it called them accursed items. So apparently physical objects can be cursed. Uh, simple answer for that would be they can have certain qualities to them that are influenced by evil that can cause a person to be more vulnerable to demons. Short answer. Um, and there's even examples in Acts where they would burn specifically books of spells and sorcery and things like that when people would come to Christ. They would specifically put forth the effort of burning it. And there's a reason for that. You know, because they didn't, they didn't want those books to influence anyone else. So just like, yes, just like you can have the Spirit of God that can uh, empower even a physical object to heal somebody or drive demons out of a person, evil can also uh, touch physical objects in such a way that it can negatively influence people as well. Uh, there's nothing particularly special about a certain physical item, but short answer would be, Anything that's created or used with some kind of malicious intent becomes part of evil. And that's why he says a garment can be defiled by the flesh, which is what he's trying to imply here in Jude. So, of course, when it's something obvious like a voodoo doll or a Ouija board or whatever, that's kind of more obvious. It's like, okay, we shouldn't you know, mess with those things. But if somebody makes something like music with an intent that's evil... It's become defiled by the flesh. Um, Acts 15, Paul says, the apostles say, avoid what is polluted by idols. So obviously, objects can be polluted by idols, by evil, so on and so forth. So, yes, does that answer the question, Dave? Yeah. I think there's, I know there is, I just can't put my hand on where it is. Something about the altar making the thing holy, not the thing making the altar holy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's in Jesus' words. I believe it's either Matthew 23 or Luke 11 around there somewhere where he talks about the uh, lawyers and Pharisees swearing by the, the gold of the temple rather than the temple that sanctifies the gold. Yeah. So, yeah, there's that's another scripture that would be good. Okay. So, for the sake of time, we'll move on. So, again... The one thing that's important to remember about God's wrath is that it is the intensity of his love for his creation expressed in the obliteration of what would endanger his creation. So you need to have the love of God in order to have God's wrath, and God's wrath is actually rooted in his love. So what we're going to talk about today is how that wrath and that love is expressed in the cross, specifically, when, when Jesus died. Because this is the most important part, this is the foundation of our faith, that if it weren't for Jesus' death and resurrection, then our faith would be completely useless and we would have no salvation, uh, let alone a relationship with God if it were not for that. So, in order to be able to communicate the gospel to somebody, you have to be able to communicate God's love and wrath in a way that is understandable to them, and that's part of what the cross is for. And that's why Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 11 that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. In other words, it is so simple that 
people call it foolishness. But it is the message of the cross is, in a nutshell, God's character, uh, his wrath and his love expressed in a way that testifies to his love in a way that draws us to himself, but also testifies of his wrath and his judgment in a way that would motivate us to depart from evil. So the, the cross is essential for this. So, and it won't take too long to get through it. So we, we should be able to go through this quickly. The first passage I'd like to look at is John chapter 12. So let's go to John chapter 12. In verse, let's do verse 27, John 12, verse 27. John chapter 12 in verse 27. Jesus speaking, he says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So if we pause there for a moment, this is one of the last interactions that Jesus has with people before he has the, has the supper with his disciples, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, prays, sweats blood, gets arrested, and is led away to be crucified. So this is one of the last interactions you see in public with Jesus. Uh, amongst his disciples. And he says his soul is troubled. And he poses this question, will I ask God to save me from this trouble? The trouble of his soul. That's what he's talking about. But then he says, for this purpose, I came to this hour. So in other words, I came to this hour for the purpose of my soul being troubled. That's what he's saying. So he's saying it's actually on purpose that my soul is troubled and I'm not going to ask God to save me from it because it's supposed to happen. My soul is supposed to be troubled. So then he says, after he you know, says, Father, glorify your name, you go to the remainder of verse 28, says, then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not, be, did not come because of me, but for your sake. This is what we're going to focus on. Verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Some translations say all men to myself and others just say, I will draw all to myself. So when Jesus said, I will be lifted up from the earth, he is talking about being lifted up and put on a cross. That was the point. That's a reference to his crucifixion. He uses that statement in John three also, where he says, as, as the serpent, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man will be lifted up. And if you know that story, Moses made a bronze serpent and he put it on a pole standing up out of the ground and people would look at it and be healed if they had been bitten by these venomous snakes. So that was a type and shadow of something that was going to happen in the New Testament. Jesus was as this serpent. He was lifted up, put on a wooden pole, which in, for his, in his case was a cross, and then all who looked and believed would be saved. 
So there's a type and shadow there. I won't get into more details about that for now. But that's what being lifted up from the earth means. This is a direct reference to his crucifixion. So keep that in mind. And he says, now, in that moment, being lifted up from the earth, now is the judgment of this world. So this is saying that the moment that Jesus was going to be crucified was the moment that the world was going to be judged and that the devil would be defeated. This in this moment in Jesus' crucifixion, that the earth would be judged or the world would be judged and the devil would be defeated. Those two things were accomplished through Jesus' death specifically. Now, what this means is that through believing in Jesus, which of course includes believing in his death, his crucifixion, we should experience our sins having been judged through what he did for us, and then the enemy being defeated in our lives. We have to believe in those two things. Now, judgment is the expression or the act, God's act, of pouring out his wrath, and that, of course, results in our sins being judged. So, if Jesus is saying now is the judgment of this world, that's the same thing as saying now is the time where God's wrath is going to be poured out. So, prophetically speaking, we'll look at what that means in more detail. So, go to Isaiah, which is a book of the prophets. Isaiah chapter 53. There might be a microphone turned on in here somewhere that's somehow getting some feedback. Okay, Isaiah chapter 53. Let's start in verse 3 of Isaiah 53. This is talking about Christ. It says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now we'll go through this little by little. He says, despised and rejected by men. So, of course, we saw that happen when Jesus was rejected. If you guys remember the exact moment, Jesus is standing with Pilate in the place of judgment, and the crowds are shouting, crucify him, crucify him, right? Even though literally days earlier, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and they laid palm branches and clothing in front of him as a red carpet to enter as king into Jerusalem. And a few days later, they're crying out to crucify him, right? To fulfill prophecy, right? So he's despised and rejected. That was fulfilled in that moment. Then a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So the Hebrew word for sorrows and then the Hebrew word for grief mean pain Anguish, infirmity, sickness, disease, and also sorrow and grief. So to be acquainted with sorrows and grief is basically a general way of saying that Jesus experienced all suffering and pain that results from sin in a person's life, which includes physical and emotional infirmity. Then it says we hid, as it were, our faces from him. So you have people hiding their faces from Jesus. They don't want to look at him. Now, there's a statement in Galatians 3, 
in verse 13 that says he became a curse for us. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that he became, he, he who knew no sin became sin for us. So he became a curse and he became sin. Now, if you imagine sin and cursing embodied as a person, that's what you were looking at when you were looking at Jesus when he was crucified. So that people were looking at the wretchedness of their sin hanging on the cross. Same reason Moses put the snake on the pole in the wilderness. <laughs> Anyhow, so when you had the, the snake hung on that pole in the wilderness, you were hanging on that pole the very thing that was hurting people. So Jesus becoming sin was he was becoming the sin that was what cursed us. And that's why people hid their faces from him because they didn't want to, they didn't want to look at that, but that's what Jesus became physically. Then verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So that again, same Hebrew word, sickness, disease, pain, anguish. He bore those things for us. Then it says, yet we esteemed him. This is where it gets important. I mean, it's all important, but. <laughs> this, this is where we're focusing. <laughs> uh, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So who's striking him? God. Not just people. God's doing it. He was wounded, what? For our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement, that word means punishment, for our peace or to result or accomplish our peace, that was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. They made his grave with the wicked, and, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. There's another reference, that God is the one bruising him. One, other translations say it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put, he, God, has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Okay. Awesome chapter. So we're focusing on he was stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. God laid on him the iniquity of us all and it pleased the Lord to crush him or to bruise him and that God has put him to grief. 
So God is the one doing these things. Why would it please God to crush his own son? It's all because of what Jesus became. So what did Jesus become? Sin and the curse. So if you have something that becomes sin, becomes what is hurting and destroying your creation, and you crush that thing, it's pleasing to you because you're providing a solution. You're getting rid of sin. That's what God was doing. That's why it pleased God to crush him. So what you end up with, if you look at John 12, which we just read before this and those few passages in Isaiah 53, you end up with this teaching that when Jesus was crucified, he was being, literally speaking, bruised, crushed, put to grief, afflicted, and stricken by God as though God were the one causing the stripes because Jesus became our sin and in Jesus' body and soul being destroyed, that was our sin being destroyed. That's what was happening. And that is the judgment of God on sin. Now, the very fact that Jesus would do that for us, so we wouldn't have to go through that, is where his love comes in. And this is where you have Romans 5, 8, uh, and 9 come into play, which we'll read next. So go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Let's start in verse 7. Romans chapter 5 and verse 7. Says, for scarcely or rarely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God, de God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. That's the relationship with God restored. God demonstrates his love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then it says, having much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. So you have God demonstrates his love through Christ dying. And having been justified through that death, we're saved from wrath. So there's his love demonstrated in what he saved us from. So the intensity of God's wrath and judgment against sin was fully revealed in Christ's death. And the fact that Jesus, who really is God manifest in the flesh, is taking that for you demonstrates how much love God has for you in not being willing that any should perish. He didn't want anyone to perish. He didn't want anyone to die or have to be judged the way that Christ was. 
or that we would have been. So he takes his own wrath or suffers his own wrath in our place so that we wouldn't have to. Where believers miss it oftentimes or where we don't give the cross due credit is that we'll look at how Jesus died and say, man, that is the ruthlessness of sinful people against an innocent man. And that's only a fraction of what it was really about. What it was really about was God unleashing everything that the sin of the whole world deserved upon his son or what really was himself. It was God was the one that was crushing Jesus. It ultimately was not people. So the, the problem is that if you only focus on the ruthlessness of people and their sins against an innocent man, then you're going to walk away from that thinking that being saved is just about being saved from your evil or other people's evil. But that's only a part of it. Yes, you're delivered from the power of Satan, but what you're really being delivered from, according to Romans 5, what you're really being saved from is the wrath of God, right? Because God's wrath is far, 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 far more intense than the wrath of man. It is righteous. The wrath of man is not righteous. God's wrath is righteous, but it's far more intense. That's why you have Jesus in Matthew 10, for example. He says, do not fear man that can destroy the body. What does it say after that? There you go. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Right? So God has a wrath, being righteous, that results in a destruction not only of the body, but the soul as well. And the destruction of the soul is eternal, which makes God's wrath eternal. There's a limit to what man can do with his anger. With God, it's eternal because his love is eternal, because he is eternal. So you have to look at the cross, not from the perspective of what people did to God or what people did to Jesus. That's still a part of it, but that's a small part. What's most important about the cross, the way the perspective from which we're supposed to look at it is that that is the wrath of God expressed. That's what God's judgment does to a person for their sins. That's what the cross is really about. And then you look at the fact that he was willing to take that for you. That makes his love that much more magnanimous, that much more attractive, because you're looking at the most intense kind of wrath or judgment you can possibly conceive, and that that was taken away from us so that we wouldn't have to suffer it. And this point proven, just to give you a scripture for reference, just in case somebody asks you, if you go to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 27, Acts chapter 4, verse 27, says, for truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Now, this is interesting. It summarizes the entire world with those few, few statements. Because Herod 
is a Jewish ruler. Pontius Pilate is a Gentile ruler. Then you have with the Gentiles as a whole and the Jewish people as a whole. So it's the believers, they're speaking. It's their way of saying that the entire world was gathered against Jesus. That's, what it's, that's the point that's being made. It says, we're gathered together, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So God was the one behind what was happening to Jesus. God was simply using human vessels as he always has and always will. There's a few different Old Testament examples. One in particular is the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, who was a Babylonian king. In the prophet Isaiah, God actually refers to Nebuchadnezzar or Babylon as the sword of God to judge his people Israel. So Babylon was a nation that God used, but God was the one doing it. God was the one judging Israel when they were besieged and then led away captive to Babylon. Same thing is happening here. God is making use of the evil intent of Herod, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, but to accomplish what he determined beforehand to be done, what he planned to be done, and what he knew needed to be done. Because it was ultimately not people that were crushing Jesus, it was God that was doing it. So if you want people to understand what the message of the cross really is, it is the intensity of God's wrath against your sin, my sin, that's exhausted in the suffering of Christ so that that suffering could be removed from us so we could be freed from it. That's what the cross is for. And God's love is shown in that on a much, much, much deeper level. So when we are both understanding and communicating the gospel to someone else, you're sharing your faith with somebody. If there's one thing that you can leave a person with, that's the most important element for them to remember of the gospel is the message of the cross. And the cross is the revelation of God's wrath and his love in one event, in one package. And that's the most important thing for people to understand. One moment and then we'll answer that question. So to summarize, Jesus' death expresses or shows the punishment that our sin deserves and the wrath of God that was due to us for our sin. Jesus' death also shows God's love for us and how much he was willing to sacrifice, how much he was willing to suffer for our sake. So the message of the cross is the message of both God's wrath for our sin and God's love to have Christ suffer that wrath in our place. That's what the cross reveals. You have to have both. You can't have one or the other. If you have a hyper-grace, touchy-feely, rainbows and butterflies gospel, then people are not going to have a fear of God. They're not going to understand the cross. But if all you talk about is fire and brimstone, you're also leaving out what is 50% of the story. 
which is the love of God. You have to have both. So what I do when it comes to if I have a moment with somebody and it's, and it's appropriate to talk about the cross, it's the right timing in, in a conversation, and if I want to leave them, leave them with something, especially if I'm not going to see them again or most likely that I won't see them again, I'll simply tell them in a few words to say, just, you know, there's one thing I want you to remember. It's that what Jesus suffered on the cross was the wrath and the punishment of God that you deserve for your sin. And the fact that Jesus did that for you, showing you how much he loves you and what he will deliver you from if you choose to believe him. Turn from your sins and follow him. That's just what I leave people with. It's that simple. And it doesn't have to be those exact words. You can put it in some of your own words. As long as you're expressing the cross as God's love and God's wrath revealed in one moment, then that's what you want to go for. And that's, that's what, what helps a person understand it. So, Laura, did you have a question or comment? So when I've talked with people before, you know, that there's a scripture in Hebrews that says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And, you know, their question is, but why? Why, why did blood have to be shed in order for there to be forgiveness? So there's two ways of looking at it. The first way is that the shedding of blood is simply representative of death period as in when when somebody bleeds or when you see blood the reason why it's unpleasant is because it's it's a it's a touch or a taste of death basically is what it is because if if our bodies were glorified then we wouldn't bleed right so one way of looking at it is just simply that the shedding of blood is just symbolic or representative of death, period. And as in there has to be a death for there to be remission of sins. That's the first way. Second way of looking at it is that God specifically created blood as a identifying mark of a person's quality or status one scientifically example, scientific example would be that you can find pretty much all of the information you need to know about a person's physical state by looking at their blood. Because in your blood, you have all of your genetic information, the health of your entire body, every cell in your body. You can find out all that information in a blood sample. So the, that's why Leviticus 17.11 says the life of the flesh is in the blood. So that's a way of saying the Life, in other words, the, the quality of a person is found in their blood. So that would be, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. You carry that through to that application. What you end up with is, is you take, at least the way they did in the, under the old covenant, was they would take a blood, a blood sample, basically. They'd take a little bowl of blood from like a lamb that they would kill, and they would take that blood and sprinkle it on the altar, on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, and all the articles used in the tabernacle, and that was their, their way of applying the innocence or the mark of innocence found in the animal that was killed and applying it to what was defiled or guilty to declare it innocent. So just like, and it was like, it was a seal essentially. So if the life, or in this case, the innocence of an animal is represented in its blood, if you take that blood and apply it to something defiled, it declares it innocent. That was what that action represented. So you're basically dealing with 
if you put those two together, you have blood represents death or punishment. And if you take the innocence of what was punished and apply it to someone who's guilty, that makes them innocent. And so the old covenant uses that as a way of revealing how sinners are forgiven or how ultimately how sinners become saints. And that would be my short answer to the question. Well, the Bible starts out the same way. That, that blood was shed for the covering of man in the garden. Yes. Because of sin. To hide their sin, to cover it. And it was innocent life of an animal. That's just where it all started. Yep, exactly. God set it up that way from the beginning. Um, a lot of people miss that in Genesis. But when Adam and Eve sinned and they covered themselves with fig leaves, and God replaced those fig leaves and says he, he covered them with a, a, a skin, an animal skin. And that meant an animal had to die. An animal hadn't died before that. So, so God himself, however means he accomplished that, we don't know. But he killed an animal, took the skin. Sounds like he tanned it and everything. Because I don't know if I would want raw animal skin around my waist. But he <laughs> took an animal skin and he, he made clothes for Adam and Eve. And that was what covered their nakedness, which was really their guilt. Which is what made them sinners. So, exactly. From the beginning, God had used the shedding of blood, the death of the innocent as a way of accomplishing what was needed for the guilty. Did you have a question, Jacob, or a comment? Um, covering the, covering their guilt, essentially, like the only way that they realized that they were naked was because sin. And just like throughout the old Testament, you'd have to slaughter an animal to cover your sin. And Jesus was slaughtered basically to, for your consciousness sake. Your sin was no longer covered. It was taken. taken. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that animal that God had to kill in Genesis, it covered their sin mm -hmm. for the time being. And like the animals that were slaughtered for the atonement of people's sin, it was always covered. But Christ came mm -hmm. to take that away so you can walk free of it. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Great comment. Yeah. There's, this is a really important distinction. If you take a blood of an innocent creature and you sprinkle it on something or someone guilty, all you're doing is placing a marker on them. That marker says, hey, God has entitled this person as innocent, at least until they sin again. And then, then you have to <laughs> do the sprinkling again. But all that blood was back then was a marker. That's all it did. It marked a person as innocent for a time. And in that sense, it covered sin. But when John the Baptist announced the arrival of Christ at the beginning of Christ's ministry at the Jordan River, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. It could cover it, but it could never take it away. Jesus is unique because he's the Lamb that takes away your sin, not just that covers it. Oh, there we go. Okay, it's working again. Yeah, one moment. Um, and then I'll have you ask your question or make your comment. So, Jacob's point, this is also referenced in Hebrews 9, verse, verses 13 and 14. It says, the blood of bulls and goats could purify the flesh temporarily, but it only addressed the flesh. The outward man is the only thing it could do. It can never cleanse the inward man. Verse 14 says that the blood of Christ cleanses your conscience. That's the taking away sin part. 
He can remove sin from your inner man. He can actually cleanse your mind. He can wash you to the degree that you're a new creation now. That's the effectiveness of the blood of Christ. The blood of bulls and goats could never do that. So that's the important distinction that has to be made. That's what makes Jesus special, what makes him different rather than just the shedding of the blood of an animal. Yeah. You might have partially answered it, but I was just curious why Jesus didn't stay dead like every other sacrifice that ever happened. You know, like you kill like an innocent lamb and it just is dead, right? So like, why did Jesus come back? <laughs> well, so there's a couple ways of addressing it. So shortest answer would be because God said he would, you know, <laughs> um, that would be prophetically speaking. Like I, so, okay. I'm so fascinated with this. I'm, I, w- I will geek out if I don't restrain myself. So <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I'll, 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 I'll hold back a little bit, but I, for a long time, I always found it interesting that there's so like Isaiah 53, the whole chapter is pretty much about Jesus death. But then when you look up scriptures about Jesus' resurrection in the Old Testament, they're much more elusive. They're not as obvious. You can hardly find what seems to be a direct reference to Jesus' resurrection. It's not as obvious. And I think the reason why is because when the, de- when the devil could look at the, the Bible without God's wisdom, he could go, oh, Isaiah says Jesus is going to die. That sounds good. We want to kill the Son of God. But he didn't know that Christ would rise again from the dead And the Bible says if he had known what was going to happen, he would never have crucified Jesus, right? So God had to hide Jesus' resurrection in the Bible in places where you'd have to look really, really, really hard and where the devil wouldn't be smart enough to find it. And so, yeah, it is. It's really cool. So like, for example, Isaiah 53 says he will see his seed and then prolong his days. This is right after it says Jesus would be killed, right? Prolong his days, so that means, wait, but his day is stopped. He's cut off from the land of the living, but then it says that he'll prolong them. But it's like, it doesn't say he'll rise from the dead, but he'll prolong his days. Like, what does that mean? You know, right? It's mysterious, right? Then you have Psalms, Psalm 16. Uh, David, uh, through the Holy Spirit, prophesies and says, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And David seems to be speaking for himself, but he's really speaking as the Messiah, who is Jesus. You won't allow your Holy One to see corruption. Corruption means physical decay. So the fact that Jesus rose on the third day means that he rose again before his body decayed and you start decaying four days after you die. Right? So he rose before he started corrupting. And that's what David was saying in Psalm 16. But again, it's not obvious. It's, it's not explicit. So it's, the devil would read that and go, well, David's dead. Of course he saw corruption. So whatever, move on. But the whole time it was about Jesus, right? Um, last example would be Jesus say, as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So the son of man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, right? That's being dead, but he'd only be there three days and three nights. So apparently Jonah was about Jesus' resurrection. But again, it's mysterious. It's, it's hidden in there, right? So you have the fact that God said it in those prophecies, therefore it had to happen. But if you want to get, get into the more theological reason, it's simply that, um, well, I'll just read it. Peter, Peter specifically says it uh, in Acts. So if you go to Acts in Acts. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Acts 2, verse 22 says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, where he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. So it was not possible that Jesus should be held by the pains of death. Simply because Hades or the place of punishment for sin, is only for those who are in sin. Jesus had no sin. So death is the wages of sin. But if you have no sin, death is not your just reward, in which case you cannot be held by death. So Jesus couldn't be held in hell because he had no sin. And it was prophesied in the Old Testament, God having declared it, in which case it had to be accomplished in order for that, that word of God to be fulfilled. So... Yes. Does that answer the question? First um, Corinthians 15 also says that it's meaning. If there's no resurrection, it's all meaningless. Yep. We might as well drink and have fun and party and be. Yeah. Because we're. Yeah. I mean, I'm having fun anyway, but. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I get your point. Yeah. 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 Without the resurrection, it's all meaningless. Yeah, it had to happen. Your faith is futile and you're still in your sins if Christ didn't rise again from the dead. So, Yeah, okay. Any more questions? Comments? Okay, awesome. So, what we will do is... Now, here's, here's something that... I don't necessarily want to make it a formal challenge, if you will. But I would encourage you guys once we're, because we're going to do some prayer and stuff, and once we dismiss and let you guys continue with uh, just fellowship with one another, you can do it now or later, but it would be good practice to just simply try to explain the cross in just a few sentences to each other, you know? Imagine you're just having a conversation with somebody, and somebody asks you, Jesus died on the cross for my sin. What does that mean? Glad you asked. And then share what you would share, you know. Um, it's good practice because it's really important to get good at this. Because if there's one thing that you need to be able to explain to a person, it's what the message of the cross is. I mean, out of all things, if you, don't, if you can't explain that, then you can't move on to other things. Yeah. I'll just reiterate what David said a while ago, but he's like, yeah, praying for people in a supermarket is good and may leave them with like a good feeling for the day, but what saves them is Christ. That's the mm -hmm. foundation of everyone's. Um, mm -hmm. that's the foundation to everyone's salvation. So knowing how to clearly articulate to that, that to someone like elevator speech, very effective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Elevator speech. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. Yep. I, uh, I realized one day that, Hey, if I pay for someone's groceries and say, Jesus loves you, that's great. I'm sure it, that can really touch a person. 
But if that just makes their day, but they're going to spend their eternity in hell, that, you know, <laughs> that's a, not, not a good trade-off, you know. So I'd rather leave somebody with the truth that will actually save them, you know. Um, so it's a good practice. I'd encourage you guys to do that, um, whether you do it in this, sort of almost like the safety and comfort of this environment of being able to share it with friends, then that's great. Otherwise, you can always practice with family. You can, whenever you're talking to people, you, know, you can discuss it. But uh, that's the focus. Um, so next next week we'll be moving on to a different topic. So I would encourage you guys to uh, make sure you're you're putting due time into understanding this so that you're able to articulate it. Um.